Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I just mentioned yesterday how much more video editing I'm doing, but today what I wanted to talk about was the editor that I'm using. And so I'm, I'm really using a lot of Final Cut Pro. Um, I think everybody is. I think, or well, uh, what am I saying? I think I think a lot of people are using Final Cut Pro, but really a lot of people are using Adobe Premiere. That's another one that's out there. We'll talk about that later, I guess. But I just did an update to Final Cut 10.4, and I've talked about this a few times too. How I'm switching over to try and process more 360 video in sort of a professional way, or you know, kind of like as a product or something, some kind of nicer version of 360 video, other than I guess just what simply could be put together. Uh, but it's, it's, what am I saying? It's still simple. It's easy. So Final Cut 10.4 is pretty cool because it has the ability to edit equirectilinear images and then render those out so that you get to you get to visualize those in a VR environment or you get to visualize those visualize those um, out to an MP4 that you get to open up in any kind of player or throw up onto YouTube or, or uh, Facebook, which is also uh, pretty accepting of these 360 format videos. But it's been really interesting kind of working with it. And, and really what makes it kind of possible is the modern editing software of uh, something like uh, Final Cut 10.4 that has those, uh, those additions to work with, you know, those pieces. But interesting stuff. I like working with it. You know, it's a lot thinner. And I think Apple has this design theme right now where they, you know, they have like a couple buttons. I don't know. There's probably like a little designer name for them, like how they had the hamburger a few years ago. That was an element in apps and on mobile websites of the little stack of lines that would be at the upper left-hand corner of a, of a web page. You click on that and it would fold out into a little menu or something. The developers would talk about that as a hamburger, something about the way it looked in layers or something. I don't know. Developers are hungry. That's all I can figure in that. But uh, in this one, there's like three little icons that are up in the, the top uh, kind of menu bar of Final Cut. And when you click on those, it has you know, it kind of pulls away different elements, different modules from Final Cut, like the browser or the project pane or the information screen that you have kind of on the right side. And so it's interesting how, you know, how they're kind of messing around with it a little bit. But I like the darker theme of it. All of it seems really great. And uh, I've been appreciating it. I mean, it's probably a smaller upgrade from what was it, like 10.3 point something. But really what you get out of this, like I mentioned, is the ability to edit those 360 videos and uh, to, to do some stuff in VR. And I think some of it's like the, what is it? The, I think you now get to like put up text, like text walls or, or word, you know, like word art or, you know, I guess effects in the 360 environment or in the VR environment. And that's kind of a cool addition to what you can do in uh, Final Cut 10.4. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. Uh, really trying to do a lot of scouting stuff, which I've enjoyed too. Doing some scouting stuff through the summertime has been pretty cool uh, where I'm really trying to go through some of these back roads. I'm trying to like uh, mark spots on the map where there's good campsites, uh, which I hadn't really I'd done before. You know, there's a lot of places I've driven, a lot of, uh, a lot of roads I've been on, and uh, uh, especially, you know, like backcountry roads, two forest service roads, BLM roads. And I know a lot of good dispersed camping areas. And really, I understand the context of how to find those areas so much better now that I'm older than when I was young. I mean, when I was young, 
and I'd go camping with my dad. You know, we'd go out to Eastern Oregon, we'd find some spots, and they had known about those spots since, you know, he was a kid, and he was going over there in hunting camps and stuff with his grandpa. Um, so it's cool for me to get to go over to those same spots and get to check out that area and stuff. But I think there's been, uh, or at least when I was a kid, I didn't really understand the, the land, uh, like the public land rights that you have and, and really how those are organized, like how public lands are organized and what you can do on them and, and sort of how it operates. I didn't really understand the difference between um, national forest land and BLM land or national park land and state park land or wilderness areas national wildlife refuge areas man there's just so many different distinctions of, of different things and then also just private property so i i didn't really have a, a clear recollection of any of those things and really a lot of time when it's public land you can go on it but there's some things you can't do on it like either maybe hunt in some circumstances uh, like a like a national park or i think you can't discharge a firearm inside a national park but for specifically permitted events, maybe probably uh, national wildlife refuges. I think those hunting opportunities are are limited also. Though you can still do some things in, in those areas. I think you have to get permitted and uh, you have to draw a tag for that location, I think is what it is. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting sort of learning about that, learning how these things go, and, and uh, also finally getting some maps that you can use that you can kind of trust better while you're in the backcountry. I think that's something that's really helped uh, me kind of understand where I can go and what I can do and I don't I mean I've had those map books you know like that that 50 page or 100 page book of Oregon and you know every every page is a 25 mile map of that area it was always super useful how they kind of grid out everything and show you that you know the mile by mile marking and the, the topography of the area the different little roads and stuff but even those roads those map makers still got things wrong I remember too you know back in like was it 2004 I think we were out in an area in southern Oregon near the Nevada border. What is it, Drew's Reservoir? Somewhere south of Gearheart Mountain. And I remember we were on some some little some little road. I don't even know if it was if it was a, a national forest area. I think it was just in, uh, is in between private and public lands as it kind of uh, jumps back and forth in those uh, pretty remote areas. All of it is just remote desert and forest and sagebrush and juniper um, but some of it goes into like ranch land that's more managed and some of it cuts back into blm land so it's, uh, as this little road sort of meander through it uh, but i remember being out there and, and noticing that the map on the page was just totally different than the map or than you know the real world ground truth of where the road went and i thought oh whoa yeah you can't really trust the maps to show you the information that you want to see uh, when you need it other times too you know you'll see like a, oh hey like it shows there's a road right here good deal we'll take that road well you know it shows it it's on the map so you cut down there you get on the road and then it's washed out like crazy or it's super bumpy and like uh and just a terrible ride and, but it's the same green roads the same label the same marking as the road next to it that was graded and uh and uh i don't know what it's not paved right it's it's graded gravel they put more gravel down, I think is what I'm trying to say. They've, uh, they've made it an easier going road to, to drive on. But then you get those washboard uh, sections out there. I don't know if you guys have been on that where you're driving around in the Forest Service roads and those gravel roads. And I think it's a natural process of erosion that occurs that creates these waves in the material. You know, as I think it, as the rainwater comes down, um, it sort of naturally over time generates these, uh, these little ripples and uh, that's the washboard effect that you get when you're driving. That's also the thing that kind of uh, kicks your car sideways when you're uh, you're going a little too fast on a gravel road. 
that's what I started doing today. I think I kicked it pretty hard side or you know, like uh, it, it was it was pretty loose on the traction and it was starting to tip sideways in my truck. And so I slowed down and threw it into four wheel drive after that, uh, and uh, was able to cruise around out here pretty freely. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk on this podcast about hanging out in the Fremont National Forest, and I just got finished uh, with a huge thunderstorm that came through. It just really finished uh, raining a little bit ago. Uh, it was kind of, uh, I think when I arrived here today at this meadow, it was still a few hours before sunset, so I walked around and uh, kind of went along the perimeter of the meadow, and then uh, and then I noticed that, you know, I mean, it's cloudy. Uh, it's It's been kind of cloudy today, and there's been thunderheads that have been uh, building up over the location that I've been. Ever since I, I kind of came over the pass of the Cascades, I've been in uh, like a, a pretty solid string of, uh, of thunderheads that have sort of coalesced into a uh, big mass over the Cascades. Some of it here over the, the Fremont National Forest, whatever mountains these are that I'm in. And, uh, and yeah, it seems like this section of Eastern Oregon was getting hit with a good thunder, a good summer August thunderstorm today, which was kind of fun to sit through and go through. It was cool. It, uh, I got rained on pretty hard earlier when I was driving over, and I thought I'd, I'd get out here and be a little bit more free of it, but it, it seemed like that storm kind of drifted over this way and then was sort of uh, drifting north from here. And, uh, and yeah, it was a, a new system, but, man, there was just a bunch of lightning that was coming through and huge cracks of thunder, just big, deep rumbles. I haven't heard thunder like that in, in years and years probably, you know, where it just kind of stays and, like, hangs and rolls for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, it seems like, you know, where you just really count, like, whoa, is, can it really still be just cracking and rumbling and rolling? And, uh, and there was enough activity, enough lightning activity that was going on there where you, you'd hear thunder. I mean, it was almost uh, like 45 minutes there where there was just a, a crack and a roll of thunder uh, almost continuously. Like, it, it, was, uh, it was pretty intense. It's, it's, it's really, I think, one of the more strong lightning storms I've been in in a while. But, uh, but that's sort of how it goes out here when you're at these higher elevations. I think I'm floating around up in the uh, 5,100 feet or so above sea level. And so it just means I'm, I'm up in the mountains where these, uh, these thunderstorms get started. You know, they get their, they get their, I think that's where they, they all kind of coalesce over these big mountaintops and then float over in the hot weather. I don't really understand the weather enough to say I know how a thunderstorm starts or doesn't start. Now, I've just gotten cold enough. I'm trying to throw a jacket on. I know. You got to live through it. I'm really camping. It's been good. But I'm going to be out here for uh, two nights, I think, is what I'm going to do. And then tomorrow I'll, I'll cruise out and uh, I'll try and hit some of these forest service roads for a bit, drive around, do some exploring, mark a couple spots on the map as, I'm, uh, as I'm cruising around. I think that'll be, uh, that'll be a good time. But, uh, but, yeah, I haven't been out here before. I think I've heard of a couple friends that have been out in this area that have done some I think they did a couple scouting trips for a hunting trip that they were going on in the fall. I think this is an area where, where one of my friends goes. I think they try and draw a, a tag for not this area. I think it's a drainage over from here. But I think uh, I've heard about this area a couple times from uh, from people talking about it. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. It's a cool spot. I was out taking pictures earlier, taking some photographs. I've been working mostly uh, probably for almost a year and a half now. Um, I've been working a lot with this uh, uh, 17 to 40 millimeter wide angle Canon lens. And it's a pretty inexpensive lens. I think you can get it for like 400 bucks, maybe a little less if you're lucky and you get it on a sale time. Sometimes in the fall, as we're kind of ramping down toward um, 
for Thanksgiving, I think you can get some good deals on it, but that's yeah, it's sort of in the, the, the $400 range. I think sometimes maybe it's more around five or something, but I picked it up a couple of years ago when I was starting to do um, some uh, real estate photography or, well, I was working for Airbnb for a while uh, where they had hired me as a photographer to go into these uh, Airbnb plus listings and uh, get a new set of photographs. That was interesting, kind of learning about how specific they wanted all those uh, those photographs and this this really specific uh, art style and um, and you know format of it. And that was fine. It was interesting to do for a while. But uh, but what was cool is I picked up that lens to to get in and, and do that work. Um, but really, after that, I've been appreciating how, how much I can do with that wide-angle lens. And then, you know, 40 millimeters isn't way different than 50 millimeters. It's, it's certainly different uh, for the effects of portraits and stuff. But when I'm out here doing landscape stuff and I'm trying to uh, take pictures of uh, – a lot of this stuff is kind of sketch photos, too, where I'm sort of going around at midday. I'm taking some photos of some different things. I want some camp photos in my truck and my, my little cooler set up in the back here. Um, and uh, so all that's been good. In addition to that, the uh, the astrophotography stuff that I can do with it is pretty cool because it drops down to the 17 millimeters. Uh, it's an autofocus lens. It's a sealed lens. It's uh, it's pretty it's it's pretty good in most ways. And I've really noticed over time that I'm not as uh, as absolute of a mandate for me to be shooting at a really wide open uh, f-stop. You know, if I'm, I'm shooting at a wide open aperture, almost all of my photos early on were at 1.8 or or 2.0 or 2.8 or something. And uh, I would do that really because I, I was trying to, I was really trying to get, because I didn't have very many lenses, I was really trying to get as much effect out of that bouquet, out of that soft background as I could. Um, so I was really trying to lean into that and get some photos with it. And I noticed with my camera and equipment at the time that it just, uh, it just looked better. It just did look better when it was at, you know, F1.8. I think I just had that nifty 50 Nikon uh, 50 millimeter for the longest time. That's what I did, did my early trips on and uh, did a lot of my portfolio building stuff on that. But uh, but uh, I've got a different 50 millimeter lens with me now. I've got it on my film camera in my bag right now, which I, I need to take out too. And I'm trying to finish a roll of uh, Ektar film. It's been on there for a while. And I've enjoyed shooting it. It's cool. It's a it's a new Canon camera to me, at least. I got it used on KEH and uh, spent, I don't know, 35 bucks on it. 10 bucks to ship it and uh it takes a weird battery too it's one of those 90s film cameras and it has this weird it almost looks like a battery pack this it's like two it's almost like two double a's if they were a little fatter that are bonded together in this little plastic pack and then you pop that in there and uh, shoot for a little while i guess and it, it runs a meter okay so i'm uh, i'm getting by with it but uh, i've noticed the film camera stuff it's it's fun to have an awesome film camera it'd be cool to have a leica and all the lenses i wanted but uh, a lot of the time with that you know i have the, i have the good lenses i have this this new or uh like canon l glass that i get to shoot through and uh for film photos and for the variety of of image or the variety of lenses i have you know i can i can do telephoto i can do prime i can do really wide angle all with the uh, modern digital Canon lenses that have you know chips in them that that read well, that meter well, uh, that make contact with the or that send information back and forth, or at least from the lens to the camera. I think is that how it works? That works in the autofocus stuff for the digital camera. This is di this is autofocus. So yeah, it's an autofocus digital camera. It's sending information back. It's working. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's uh, it's cool. Like uh, that's something I didn't really have available to me for a long time. You know, I think when I've 
uh, probably on this podcast, if you go way back in the archives, I'm talking a lot about film with uh, a Nikon F4. You know, I mean, that just had autofocus. That was the, the first camera in like 88 to, to get autofocus, period. Um, so it's cool to have that in a more flexible way now. But uh, what I remember talking about in the past a lot was that I had like uh, limited options with glass a lot of the time. I didn't really always have the lenses that I would have preferred. And so I've kind of made a collection of that now with this Canon stuff. I've got a Canon camera, and so I can throw all those lenses on and have that same flexibility that I have with my digital set, um, but just with this uh, this film body that I get to shoot a roll through. So I kind of save the film stuff for when it's a thing that I want. But uh, what I've noticed, though, for a little while is that uh, I miss a lot of those moments, and I end up just uh, having the the, the, the normal, you know, the regular digital camera with me with uh, a bunch of my other gear. Um, when I've been going out, I've been trying to, to kind of just take the camera with me and then I'll leave the bigger bag uh, back at the truck uh, so that I'm not really carrying as much stuff with me. I've also started carrying, um, like when I'm out here in the woods and stuff, I'm carrying a binocular harness with me, uh, which is kind of cool. You can get them in different sizes, but uh, it's sort of like if you imagine like a backpack, but uh, what they do is they strap onto the front so it's right on your chest. And uh, what you can do is fill, is put like a, a pair of binoculars in there so you can pull them out and then scout around with your binoculars, do some glassing, and then pop them back into your, uh, into your harness and then kind of carry on with whatever you want to do. But if you leave that empty without the, um, without the binoculars, if you have a smaller camera rig, probably like a mirrorless or a Sony camera, you know, like one of those Sony A6000s, man, if you were a backpacker and you had a Sony A6000 and this, uh, this front carry um, like binocular pack, You'd be really sad. That would be like all the camera bag that you'd need. In fact, really, if I'm thinking about ever doing some uh, like uh, over, you know, some longer backpacking travel where I just have to pack everything in and weight's going to be uh, something I'm more conscious of, then I think that's really like the way to go. As I've kind of been thinking about it a little bit, is like get a, get a lighter camera, or I mean, it'd be great to like carry like a 360 camera. You know, if you're going up somewhere, like, those are almost nothing as it is anyway. But uh, but if you're carrying like an SLR or something that you want to try and do some some more controlled photography with, and you had something like a an A6000 from Sony or an A7 7R3 or whatever it is, um, something that size with a lens attached to it, you know, that could fit in one of these binocular harnesses, harnesses and, and carry kind of right on your front. And then oh, you see something, you want to take it pop that open right on your chest, pull it right up to your eye. It's got straps on it in the harness. Pull it right up to your eye. It's ready to shoot. And you can uh, take photos of it or take photos, you know, as quick as you want to. So uh, it's kind of a, a cool process if you're out hiking a lot. For what I'm doing, I have my binocular harness, but it's got binoculars in it. And uh, I've been kind of going around. I've been trying to do some bird watching stuff while I'm out here. And uh, I saw a cool hawk that was posted up who was looking at me. That's about all I've seen so far. I saw a coyote the other day. That was cool. I'll talk about that later, though. But uh, uh, but so I have those binoculars in there, and I've I've been kind of going out on these uh, these shorter hikes and stuff. But I've been trying to uh, go around and uh, like just kind of watch some stuff or watch the land and, and kind of keep an eye out. But uh, I just have the camera on my longer strap on my side uh, with that uh, seventeen to forty millimeter lens, and that's worked really good. And it's been a, a pretty flexible kit for me to to go around and take a bunch of photographs with. So. It's pretty easy, pretty lightweight to work with, and I can uh, kind of move back and forth uh, between those things strapped around my neck. You know, it's not everything just hanging around my neck with a lanyard. It's all kind of uh, put somewhere or packed in somewhere. So that's been kind of cool. Uh, but it was good going out and taking some photos tonight. I was uh, trying to get some of the 
I didn't I didn't get anything lightning in the camera though. The lightning storm kind of passed as soon as it was getting really dark enough to uh, to do like a long exposure kind of thing where I could I could sort of catch something uh, something sparking. Otherwise, you know, you gotta you gotta beat the lightning bolt with your shutter finger, and that's a pretty tricky task to do. I think that's how they do it. You know, when you get those uh, you get those like magazine photos back in the day of uh, uh, a powerful lightning bolt striking. I don't know, in the center of a road or something like that. That's what they'd show, you know, some kind of uh, power or lightning bolt. But uh, the way that they would do that stuff is I think I think it was like a, I think it was dark out, you know, or pretty dark out. And so they'd set the camera up for uh, just a cycle of long exposures and then they would just kind of let it ride, you know. So they'd have uh, a couple seconds to expose the image to whatever, you know, would work. And then they would just kind of have that rolling so that when when a bolt of lightning did strike, and it would be captured, and you could go through that collection of captured, or you know, how do I say that? When a lightning bolt would strike the ground, the camera would have already been exposing for a photograph because it's just cycling the shutter on a four-second exposure, let's say something like that. Um, and so, you, you know, it takes a four-second exposure, stops, processes for a second, takes a four-second exposure, stops, processes for a second. So I think that's how they did some of that stuff where they uh, they kind of anticipate, all right, it's been a couple minutes, let's uh, take a frame now, and then it's just going to be an event in the future, so we don't know if it's going to happen or not. We're going to wait for this event in the future when we, boom, see a lightning bolt, and then that light then exposes the sensor or the film and the camera and then you're left with an image that has that lightning bolt represented in the frame when you're shooting on a tripod or something like that with uh, with a, like a short cycle, long exposure. And uh, I thought that was uh, pretty cool, but uh, I didn't really get a chance to, to get all that stuff set up before the uh, the storm kind of passed me by. I did get a lot of cool handheld stuff that was uh, that's great of the, the thunderheads and stuff. And really, unfortunately, just in the the location that I'm at, a lot of the and I guess maybe for the better, but uh, that lightning storm didn't pass right over my head. It was uh, still a little ways away, so I could see the lightning bolts cracking through the trees, kind of out in the distance more. A few that that stretched across the sky pretty good too. It was just you know a big old uh, you know from from east to west. It, it was like you know a big old chunk of a, a bolt that just crack all the way across the sky. It was cool. Um, so I got some photos of the thunderheads, the sunset, the uh, the big field out here. It's cool. It's a nice area. Um, but I was also thinking about uh, some of the other stuff that I want to be doing tomorrow. So I'm out in the the Fremont National Forest. I'm going to be heading, I think, maybe south from here, and I'm going to try and explore a couple areas that are still open. Um, or you know, I guess it's all open public land. This is like one of, uh, or a pretty large, contiguous section of, uh, of national forest land here. And, and really, like, that's a big part of Oregon overall, right? It's like 53% public lands. It's cool, yeah. If you look at a map, you'll see the cities, and you'll see like the highways and stuff. But uh, if you have the right map, it'll show you where the BLM land is and where the, the different national forests are. And it's cool. This whole area of the Northwest is, is, uh, is just, there's a lot of public land that you get to use, and uh, there's a lot of uh, open area that you get to go to. And, um, and yeah, now that I've got uh, a, a good map of uh, outdoor, off-road uh, roads and some of the terrain and stuff with uh, some good notes, and I'm able to kind of move around and, and uh, get out to a lot more places than I had before. So that's been cool. The app that I'm using is the OnX Off-Road app. It's, uh, I think, $29.99 a year. And uh, so I 
pitched that out, picked up this app, and then you can download offline these uh, these really detailed off-road maps that are supposed to show you all the trails, you know, even just walking trails, all the roads, all of the um, like the pieces of information you'd need for kind of moving around in the backcountry. And, and really as surprising as it is, as remote as a lot of these places are, uh, people go here, you know. It's, it's also public land that's managed by the... Um, the forest department forest forest service yeah i think a lot of the stuff's managed by the forest service the blm stuff's managed by the blm but that's why these roads are as good as they are or maintained or that's why like when trees are downed on these mountain roads you know someone has to go through at the beginning of the year and cut all those out rip them out fill in the potholes all that sort of stuff so all these areas are um are known about and you know kind of um managed and and a pretty significant way. In fact, I think uh, um, more so to come in the future. I think they just have announced yesterday or the day before that they've passed the Great American Outdoors Act, which I really don't know the first thing about or um, or what it does or doesn't do or what it puts in or leaves out. But uh, I think part of my understanding is that it's supposed to change some of the funding mechanisms that go into supporting the, the maintenance of these public lands that are out here uh, across the country, but really significantly out here in the western states. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. I think uh, before that it was like, well, we should spend uh, you know X amount of money, but there's a more important place for that money to go. So it wasn't like a guaranteed amount. It's sort of what I understand. So if I understand it correctly, there's like um, I think they've said three billion dollars a year of mandated funding for projects i think here in the backcountry blm land forest service land and uh, like national wildlife refuges and stuff so uh pretty cool but yeah i think that's gonna well maybe we'll see a change in that i think it's supposed to better fund the operations of, of blm and forest service people as they're going through and uh, and trying to get these areas ready for uh for the public to be using more regularly so it's cool i think it uh, it'll mean a lot uh over the next uh, few years or we'll, maybe we'll see how it how it kind of transforms um, some of the way that uh, these uh, these areas are managed. I think maybe it's it's more for. Well, you know, I probably shouldn't even speculate. I'm not sure at all, but it's pretty cool. I'm excited about uh, being out here and doing some camping and stuff, dealing with this uh, thunderstorm. I think it's one of those things where by the morning, you know, it's going to be, uh, or at least uh, well, I was looking at the weather. It should be mostly cloudy or partly cloudy, mostly sunny tomorrow for a while. So. I think that's pretty cool. I'm excited to be hanging out, doing some camping stuff, doing some podcasting. I'm in the back of my truck right now. Like I was saying, it was uh, raining earlier after the thunderstorm, so I got that canopy on my truck, and I'm nice and dry, nice and warm. Uh, it kind of feels like I'm uh, I'm just inside somewhere. So it's uh, it's a cool cool rig having the four wheel drive, having the canopy on the back, having your, your stuff and your sleeping area just kind of set up back there, and I'm ready to go. So I've been having a good time being out here and. Uh, I don't know. It's been a pretty good, pretty good trip so far. So I appreciate you guys checking out this uh, podcast from me. I'm gonna do a couple more podcasts while I'm out here on this camping trip, and I'll uh, I'll try and try and set up a, a little backlog of them on my website. I think that'll be a a good idea. I know I kind of take big breaks and stuff from it. I'm sure no one uh, no one keeps listening when it when it is there. But hey, if you listen to this end of the podcast, shoot me an email. Time for the plugs. It's uh, Billy newmanphoto.com if you want to check out my website see some of my photographs check out uh, more podcasts that i've done 
or books that I've uh, tried to put together, which is uh, maybe what I'm going to try and do out here, too. I'm going to try and get some photographs for another good book. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. I don't know. I've been liking it. It's kind of uh, kind of fun to be checking out some stuff on it. Uh, what's the other stuff I had to talk about? I think I was trying to figure out some some stuff on like my Mac laptop. I've been trying to set it up more so that it has the 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 full set of applications and features and utilities on it that I wanted. I've talked a little bit about that. Like I, I went ahead and I got the iStat menus application on there so I can look at the sensors that are in my MacBook. Uh, the the what is it the the network in and out speeds that are current and the history of the, the network up and down speeds, I guess over the last day or, you know, seven days or, you know, all that, all that information's in there. The amount of disk space where you know, all these different pieces of information you kind of want to know about your computer and your system and how it's working. I have Daisy disk, which is one I've been using in the past a lot. It's a really cool or pretty good graphical way of sort of showing the, a pie chart of what's taking up space on your hard drive. I've been using Gemini, as a, a deduplication application to go through and find like different versions of photos that I don't really want to keep stored anymore, which has been interesting to go through or, or just these just straight duplicates where, you know, the photo got pulled in. It's just the raw version twice. And it's, you know, there's no difference between it other than just one file is named two, something like that. It's sort of silly. So it's taking a, a, a silly amount of space. This has been a good program to kind of find some of those programs and then eliminate them. And it's good also to showing you like uh, or letting you compare like I, these two are said to be the same. Do you want me to kind of automatically go through and take them out? I don't really recommend that. It seems like it's best to sort of go through and select a number of them and start pulling them out. Uh, it was sort of with some thought and care to it. It seemed like that made a difference to me when I did it. So. It might make a difference if you try to do it too. Another app that I, uh, I jumped onto was the Magnet app, which sort of reproduces some of the functionality you started seeing in Windows 7, now in Windows 10, where the, the Windows, like if you have a, a, a some some window up in some program and you drag it over to the left side, it'll snap to the left side and then kind of fill that side of the screen. Or if you drag it straight up, it'll fill the full screen. If you bring it over to the right side, it'll fill that right side of the screen. That snapping stuff isn't really on the Mac. It's uh, always sort of been set up to do these sort of multi-window painting things, but I kind of like it snapping over to the side, and it helps when you have some bigger monitors, too, where it, uh, you know, it can kind of grab over to a side with, if you have a couple programs. So I got this program called Magnet. It's one of the top-selling paid apps in the App Store. There's a few different competitors, too, that people seem to be interested in also, but I got this one. It was working great enough. It's a little different than the, the way that the Windows one does it, but it's fine. Uh, and it adds the, the functionality that I was looking for, which is a great, great benefit for me. Uh, the other one, the other utility that I was picking up was Paste, the Paste app, which I think is kind of interesting. It's um, it's like a clipboard app. So every computer, I think, you know, I don't know, since we started getting graphical user interfaces, I think since, as I recall, Windows 3.1 had you know a clipboard in it. But that's when you do the, the copy-paste stuff. If you copy... 
uh, or cut, copy, or paste. If you cut or copy something, it goes onto your clipboard, and then when you paste it, it's pulled off the clipboard and pasted in to where it's going to go. But really, the computer convention, for whatever reason, is just set to that. You can only copy or cut one item at a time. And if you cut again or copy again, there's really no history of it or there's no way to track back the, the level of things that you've had copied or cut if you want to paste those in. So it can kind of add into some frustrations. But uh, this clipboard utility, Paste, the Paste app, I think is set to sort of store like snippets and, and pieces of information that you're going to try and pull up and use repeatedly over time through like your workflow. So I was trying to figure out a way to do that. I'm doing a bunch of SEO stuff like I was saying on that website. So going through and having like a like a you know this is a block of links this is a block of explanation text this is like a great meta tag this is for this zone if i have all that sort of laid out that's a great workflow where i can just kind of pull up it's sort of it's like a it's visually the the, the ui is that you hit like a command on the keyboard it'll pull up the bottom third of the screen and you have this history this row this like timeline of all the different times that you've copied something over to your clipboard and you can go back to as far as a month or maybe even more than that. And it, it'll share it with iCloud, too. So if you have different computers, you can have this app on there. And you can kind of share everything on your clipboard around. It's kind of interesting. And it's a, a cool little, I don't know, little uh, useful Mac utility if you are so inclined to do copy-paste. But I don't know. I, you know, a lot of people seem to survive with just, uh, what is it, Command, Command C, Command V? I guess I have up until this point, but I thought I'd try it out. I thought it'd be kind of fun. So, Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other, other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.